My name is Deb Kornblatt, and this is My Life Wildlife. I am the Regional Invasive Species Outreach Coordinator with the Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. One of the ways I've been describing it is like making invasive species outreach dreams come true. I guess the biggest thing I do is just tell people like you can actually make a difference, that you can be part of the solution, that anybody can help prevent the spread by simply just making sure that they're not transporting invasive species on boot dirty boots or in, you know, dirt, like in standing water that they might have in either deer or recreation equipment that they use outside. If you do see something different, report it. And there's lots of tools for people to do that through um, calling 1877-INVASIVE or the Alaska Department of Fish and Game online reporter or even using the Alaska Weeds ID app. So originally I'm from outside the DC area in Virginia did my undergrad at the College of William Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia, in government and environmental policy. Through that, I'd done a semester in DC, uh, which exposed me to the Fish and Wildlife Service, being an intern in their international affairs program. And through that, I met somebody who'd been a directorate resource fellow, and she told me about this awesome program for the summer and basically convinced me to apply. And that brought me up to Alaska in this more fellowship capacity with the service. So I got to bounce around the state and do outreach, mostly learning how bait and tackle shop owners were aware or not aware of invasive species, what they are, what they do, and how it impacts them. And I went back, finished up school. And so I did a one-year master's at the University of Exeter in England in conservation science and policy. And once that wrapped up, this position had opened up and I was able to kind of come home, have a little bit of downtime with my family, and then hop right up to Alaska in the middle of winter and mid-pandemic. So here we are. <laughs> so I guess the best way I've been describing it to friends and family is being able to ice skate across a frozen lake to go cl up close to a glacier is Alaska. <laughs> if you can do something like that, by only driving an hour from your house, and by house I mean like being in the largest population center in the state, that is Alaska. <laughs> When I first started with this, I knew basically nothing. I sort of knew very basic idea of what an invasion curve is, which is just the process of how an invasive species kind of becomes established and like how difficult it gets to manage it. The longer time goes on and the less that stuff is done with it. Even now, like having worked on it for so many months and nearing that year mark, I still can't always describe it properly. And depending on who I'm talking to, it gets even more complicated because there's this even a whole debate within this, the invasive species community of like, what do we describe as invasive? And in Alaska, an example is Northern Pike. Northern Pike is native. North of the Alaska mountain range, it's native. It's been here, it's been part of the land. It's an important subsistence resource. It's a part of the land. It's part of the landscape, it's part of Alaska but it's been brought south of the Alaska mountain range and it's invasive. And how do you explain to somebody that, oh, this is linked to like glaciation <laughs> and like millions of years and things like that are, I guess, some of the questions I get to grapple with on a pretty routine basis. And what that looks like in practice is trying to do some hands-on materials like blogs and social media so that we can kind of keep these <clears throat> topics in rotation. And then also actually designing some pamphlets or flyers or signage that we can put up. I also get to 
help coordinate the Alaska Invasive Species Awareness Week. And Alaska is in a unique place because it doesn't have a lot of invasive species. That's another thing that makes it so unique. Whereas in many places in the lower 48, it's something that's a challenge and an uphill battle. But here where that invasion curve that I'd mentioned earlier, we're very much in that prevention early stages. So there's a lot that can be done to prevent and take action when we're not dropping a lot of resources and time and money into something that seems hopeless. There is hope. The invasive species that I spend the most time working on will vary based on who I'm working with or what the conversation is happening and also what's happening in national news. So for example, a big recent one that we dealt with was zebra mussels. And Alaska does not have zebra mussels for people who don't know, or in case you don't know, it's a, basically it's a tiny looking shell that has stripes, hence the name zebra. It's caused a lot of damage in the Great Lakes. And initially it's like, oh, the Great Lakes, what does that have to do with Alaska? Well, zebra mussel plus moss ball <laughs> means it's a question and concern for Alaska. And so there was a lot of work and a lot of thought that went into figuring out, well, how do we get people to know that these moss balls, which aren't even moss, it's a filamentous alga that people can buy at pet stores, that they might be carrying this really damaging invasive species, the zebra mussel, which has caused like billions in the Great Lakes region in infrastructure because they clog pipes and they can clog motors. And so there's also that safety element you're on a boat and suddenly and you haven't used it in a while and zebra mussels covered it and it's no longer there. It's a threat to health. It changes water filtration and decreases home values. And the part that's most concerning to conservation as well is taking over that habitat and that space where native animals live and outcompeting native mussels. So up here, especially important because it's a threat to subsistence resources and how people live off of the land. So a prevention effort that we do is having, for example, a watercraft inspection station at the Alaska-Canada border. And so when any kind of watercraft comes through, they have to stop and answer a series of these preliminary questions and if need to be, decontaminate. And so a lot of these boats are coming from infested areas and this is a really important point and a little really important node in that like transportation process to make sure that it doesn't come in. So that's that's a success story that we have in keeping an invasive species out. Another challenge is people get attached. In Anchorage there's this Mayday tree or bird cherry trees and they were brought in as an or I think they were brought in as an ornamental plant and or ornamental tree and people plant them and they propagate them and they want them in their gardens, but it's really invasive and <laughs> it takes over other trees and can choke out native trees. And so one of the nicknames for it is choke cherry. And so it becomes very controversial of, well, do we get rid of it? But, oh, we love it. Or, oh, this was in our backyard since I was a child. How do I, how do I part ways with it? And so trying to kind of work through some of those attachment pieces is definitely a pushback that we receive or there's signal crayfish in Kod on Kodiak Island and you think well how did they get there and one of the assumed reasons is maybe it was a crawfish boil and somebody released some specimens into the water and now they're established in the Buskin watershed and that's a water supply and that's a big salmon habitat and so a big question that we deal with is, do we tell people to eat them? Because they are and continue to eat crawfish boils, but then at the risk of 
creating a fishery somewhere else and then spreading them and doing the opposite of what we'd like to do. Some significant percentage of invasive species reportings have been done through citizen efforts. And so citizen engagement is one of those critical elements because invasive species are small, right? They're not, they're not the most interesting things for people to just automatically look at. So part of the challenge is trying to make that, make that happen, find a creative way to show it or a creative angle to get people to look at it and be like, huh, I never noticed that. But if you can get people to like notice it, then that's the first step. And then the next step is get people to actually research it or then to even better to report it. And so, for example, in a couple of weeks, I'm going out to Eisenbeck National Wildlife Refuge and flying out to Cold Bay, going to be joining on some field work surveys for European green crabs and orange hawkweed, which is an invasive plant. And while there, hopefully doing some sort of outreach events, but also gearing up some pamphlets for hunters who are coming out there um, as it's a big place for bear hunting or waterfowl hunting, while also capturing photos and videos and maybe even recruit a volunteer or two to help us when we're not around. How do we measure success is the question I ask myself all the time. And I wish I didn't have to keep saying it. It depends and it varies, but it really does. So. If it's something on social and it's on Facebook, then there's a conversation going. We're getting a lot of engagement. That's one way. That's a scientists like to have numbers. And so social media is very cool because you have that number. You have that statistic of, oh, this many people or this many likes or comments and shares and discussions that are going on. But if it's something more informal, well, we have to use these less tangible measures and we have to use sentiment and the tone and the words that we use. And so I spend a lot of time thinking and reflecting as well on how are we talking about this and who's saying these things. And oftentimes that's not as a systematic as scientists or people might like it to be, but that's another way to measure success. You think through what's being said by whom. But I do have a case from when I was a DFP and I'd actually gotten to go out to Kodiak and to survey for the signal crayfish. And while in this town, I was going around to some of the bait and tackle shops. And one of the places I'd gone to, I was just chatting and they were talking about how the salmon runs were really bad that year. And then one of their friends came over and started chatting as well. And they actually made a comment very explicitly, despite me wearing fish and wildlife gear that I want to move crayfish into my backyard. And I had to do my double take <laughs> and do some deep breathing. And then I got to actually chat with them and try and explain to them why they shouldn't do that or why not doing that actually benefits them in the long run. And so I guess making space for people to feel comfortable enough to share that was a really good realization. I don't know what happened. They didn't follow up with me from there, but the fact that I was able to have that conversation felt pretty good at the end of the day. They haven't found crayfish in other lakes, so I'm going to say <laughs> that maybe it did work. <laughs> the most interesting invasive species that I have learned about has been white sweet clover. It doesn't look super special, and back home it is something that actually I've had friends tell me to use in my garden because <laughs> it's a lagoon, so it kind of helps with some of the nutrients that your garden might need. But up here, uh, white sweet clover is very invasive. And I got to go out on along the Dalton Highway, got to cross the Arctic Circle as part of it, 
to go look for white sweet clover along the road bank. And so I got to finally learn to idea. And as I learned to idea it, I learned more about the impact it has and how it can compete for pollinators and can actually affect the amount of berries that are available um, because pollinators will be, might be more attracted to white sweet clover because it's able to grow so much. And I think it's like able to produce like 350 thousand seeds per plant or some insane amount like that and so it just spreads really quickly and it's like all along the roadways and so now every time I drive anywhere I'm able to look out and be like ah yes that's what we're trying to prevent so it makes it really tangible and that's why I think it's one of the most interesting ones that I've actually gotten up close and personal with (laughs) so anybody can help prevent the spread of invasive species I just can't underscore that enough and There's two big ways with some subcategories. One, people can be aware and tune into the conversations that we try to push out and talk about. Then two is actually keep an eye on the ground and report. So if people see anything different or strange um, in their surrounding land and their surrounding nature, they should call in to either 1-877-INVASIVE. They can use the Alaska Department of Fish and Game online reporter on their website, or they can use the Alaska Weeds ID app to report invasive plants. Something else to note is it's better to call or report it, even if you're not sure, because it's better to have a false alarm than to not get it at all and then find out that it's a bigger problem later. Like everything is learning. And especially in the invasive world, it's unknown. And we know a lot about, for example, some plants and some species, but then there's so many more that we have no idea about being inquisitive and engaged and curious and flexible to deal with all the things that do happen because you can never predict what's going to happen next in the invasive world. I mean, who'd have thunk that moss balls and moss and zebra mussels would be connected. That was just such a <laughs> unexpected choice of fate, but we deal with it and we make the best of it. This has been My Life Wildlife, a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region, Office of External Affairs. Producers, Lisa Hupp and Chris Pacheco. Produced and story edited by David Hoffman for Citizen Racecar. Audio editing, sound design, and original music by Garrett Tiedemann. Artwork by Michelle Lawson. In Alaska, The employees of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service are shared stewards of world-renowned natural resources and our nation's last true wild places. The lands and waters of this place we call home nourish a vast and unique array of fish, wildlife, and people. Our hope is that each generation has the opportunity to live with, live from, discover, and enjoy the wildness of this awe-inspiring land and the people who love and depend on it.